0: So the title of the sermon this morning is, There's Always Opposition, Deal With It. And we'll learn how the early church dealt with it as we turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We're looking at verses 1 through 12. I am reading and preaching from the NIV this morning. Acts 4, start reading in verse 1. It says, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. We thank you, God, for the way that your love is explained to us in this text. Your goodness, your kingship, your power, your victory over sin, death, and the devil. Thank you for the way your Holy Word teaches us about these wonderful things. And We ask that today we would be, we would have a holy attentiveness to such things. That you would open our hearts and minds to comprehend the glory of what you're teaching us. That we would be shaped by what your word says. That we would live as your word instructs us. Please, Lord, please, God, help me now to teach and explain this text in a way that is faithful and helpful. Please, God, please, Lord, help us to live out this text in a way that is faithful and fruitful. For the glory of Jesus. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we kind of picked it up mid-story there in chapter 4. But if you were here last week or you've been reading the book of Acts, you kind of know where we're at in the story. The beginning of Acts chapter 3... Peter and John were on their way to the temple for an afternoon prayer meeting. There were regular afternoon prayer meetings at the temple, 3 p.m. prayer. And as they were going there, they saw this lame man by a place called the Gate Beautiful where you enter into the sanctuary of the temple who was always there. He'd always been crippled for his whole life, and he used to beg resources for others. And he was asking Peter and John for something. And Peter said, gold and silver I don't have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. Grabbed him and pulled him up and the man began to walk and he began to jump and leap and praise God in the sanctuary. And it was crowded because it was the afternoon prayer meeting everybody saw it. And the text tells us in chapter 3 that they were in awe of what they saw. But much of their awe about the healing was directed toward Peter and John. It says explicitly in the text from chapter 3 that they were, they were in amazement about what Peter and John had done. But you'll remember that Peter began to speak and Peter was faithful. Peter didn't receive the glory from himself. Peter did not deceive himself to think that he had done something in and of himself. He deflected the glory and redirected the praise to Jesus. And he began to speak to the amassed crowd about Jesus. But not just anything about Jesus. In particular about what Jesus did for them on the cross and in his resurrection. But he didn't just leave them there like some cliffhanger. He told them what they ought to do in response to Christ's death and resurrection. He said to them, Then you ought to repent of your sins and turn to God that your sins may be wiped away and times of refreshing might come into your lives. He told them that God had come to bless them by turning them from their wicked ways. And we see now in the text that there was an incredible response to that message, right? We're told in verse 4 that 5,000 men came to believe. That means that there were also women and children present who came to believe. So the church in Jerusalem has now grown in a very short time, a span of weeks here perhaps, to well over 5,000 people. There's an incredible response to the message about Jesus. Now I want you to realize that Jerusalem during this time, depending on which historian you read, had a regular popla- population of anywhere between 20,000 to 50,000 people. It swelled exponentially during the high holidays, but the regular population was twenty to 50,000 people. That means that the church now compromised a significant proportion of the population. Okay, a significant portion of the population. And so just numerically, they should have been able to have an impact culturally, socially, and religiously, and politically, remember that word, on what was going on in Jerusalem. But I want you to see the way the influence was wielded here by Peter and the way that it wasn't. That's important. So there's this incredible response And then we get to verse three and it says, and so the religious leader sees Peter and John and because it was evening, threw them in jail until the next day. Now, if we didn't know the story and we had never read it before, we'd be like, what? We're reading through and there's all this awesome stuff. The spirit comes and Peter preaches and people get saved and baptized. And then there's more people getting saved and this guy gets healed and he's jumping and he's leaping and he's praising God. And then they go to jail like actual jail, like literal jail, not make-believe jail, not some creepy religious jail, like they went to jail. And they threw them in jail that night because business hours were over. The governing body, the Sanhedrin, the religious authority in Israel, socially, culturally, religiously, had already expired their sessions for the day and they weren't gonna meet again till the morning. So these guys are preaching Jesus, throw them in jail, we'll deal with them in the morning. Peter and John find themselves, after being faithful with a message about Jesus, in jail. And here, a hard reality begins to emerge in the book of Acts and subsequently for us, and that is this that wherever the kingdom of Jesus advances, there will be opposition from the kingdom of darkness. We begin to take notice of a disturbing truth from the book of Acts that we will experience in our life. That Christians live in a constant state of warfare. And wherever the kingdom is advancing through the people of God, there will be opposition to that advancement. There is always opposition to the mission of Christ, the message of Christ, the name of Christ, and the people of Christ. Always has been opposition. That's what we're seeing in the text. But we see it in the text of our daily world as well. I was struck to read this week about GQ magazine. GQ, you know? You heard of it, GQ? If you haven't heard of it, wow. GQ magazine. GQ put out a list this week of 21 books you never need to read. In the list was the Bible. And the author there said that the Bible was foolish. And Pompous, he uses a synonym for pompous, but I can't pronounce it. So I'll just tell you what it means. 21 books you never have to read, among them the Bible, because it's foolish. There's always opposition to the message of Jesus. There was then, there is now. I was struck when someone gave me an article this week from the New Yorker. The New Yorker, you've heard of it? If you haven't heard of it, wow, you've heard of the New Yorker. It was an article in The New Yorker, and it was an author responding to the fact that Chick-fil-A... Chick-fil-A, you've heard of it? You've all heard of it. That you know. I don't know The New Yorker, but I know (laughs) Chick-fil-A. I'm in the same boat. Chick-fil-A has been doing very well in New York City, and in particular, Manhattan. And they say that they serve one chicken burger every six seconds in the city of New York. They are killing it. And this author wrote... um, wrote about Chick-fil-A coming to New York, and he said this, quote, The brand's arrival here feels like an infiltration, in no small part because of its pervasive Christian traditionalism. Its headquarters in Atlanta are adorned with Bible verses and a statue of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Its stores are closed on Sunday, and he calls this a creepy infiltration to New York City. Now, I am not equating Chick-fil-A with Christianity or saying that Chick-fil-A is necessarily the representation in our culture of Jesus. I'm not saying that, but he's saying that. I'm not saying that, but he's saying that. He's saying these creepy Christians are closed on Sundays and they got this picture of Jesus at their headquarters and this Christian traditionalism. This is an infiltration. And the point of the whole, of the whole article is we don't want that here. Opposition to anything that smacks of Jesus and his mission and his message. Did you know that there is a bill? in California, before the governing body here, that would make it unlawful for any person to sell books, counseling services, or anything else that helps someone overcome unwanted same-sex attraction or gender identity confusion. So this bill, if passed, would outlaw Anyone, including Christians, who would counsel somebody whom we love struggling with same-sex attraction or Jenny, geni- geni- what's the word, gender issues, counsel them that Jesus could somehow make a difference in the way that they feel or perceive themselves or understand themselves to be—that would be outlawed. There's always opposition. And oftentimes the opposition is shrouded in things that seem innocuous popular ideas, Chick fil A, political things, sexuality. And in our text, this opposition appears political in nature. And it's profound as to why. So I want you to follow me. Peter's discussion with the crowd, we learn from verse 2, has moved from explaining to them how you get saved to explaining to them what happens after you're saved. It says in verse 2 that he was teaching them about the resurrection of the dead in Jesus. So that those who put their faith in Jesus Christ after they die, are resurrected to eternal life in glory to be with the Lord forever. A a, a fundamental teaching of Christianity. He's explaining to that, to them, eternal life. This was, and perhaps surprisingly, a highly politically charged subject and discussion in this place and time represented in the text. And we find from the Sadducees a politically motivated opposition to the Christians and their message. And really motivated. It says in verse 2 that they were greatly disturbed by what Peter and John were teaching. Now here's some of the background as to why. I'll let someone smarter than myself explain it. I'll just quote them. This is a commentator. He says, The idea of a general resurrection was an apocalyptic concept with all sorts of messianic overtones. Messianic ideas among the Jews of that day meant revolt, overthrow of the foreign overlords, and restoration of the Davidic kingdom. There had been such movements before, and the Romans had put them down. There would be many more in the future. In fact, the worst fears of the Sadducees were indeed realized when war broke out with the Romans in AD 66 with terrible consequences for the Jews. That would have been about 30 years after our text. Here, with the large crowd surrounding Peter and John, their fears were aroused. The notes of Peter's sermon alarmed them. Resurrection. Jesus is the author of life. Jesus is a new Mo- Moses. These were revolutionary ideas. The movement must not spread. It must be nipped in the bud. Now try to understand what's going on here. With the Sadducees, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, all this this body that's coming against Peter and John and the early Christians of church here, their message and their teaching. There is no attention given whatsoever to the wholeness that was brought to the man. I mean, the dude was lame his whole life, begging his whole life. Now he's healed and set free. That point is set aside And there's this subplot that emerges. You'll know, you know, or maybe you don't know. The Sadducees were one of the Jewish ruling parties in Israel. Israel had this governing body that governed the religious, social, and cultural affairs called the Sanhedrin, made up of 70 elders. Most of them were from the party of the Sadducees. You might remember from the Gospels, Jesus was always dealing with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They were always creating drama, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And they were opposing sort of religious political parties, kind of like the Democrats and the Republicans, always causing drama. The Sadducees were the ones that hold, held most of the power and most of the seats and authority. And because of their relationship with Rome, you remember Israel was occupied by Rome here, dominated dominated by Rome. Because of their relationship with Rome, Rome afforded them special privileges and would choose the high priests from amongst their number, Sadducees. And the high priest was like the main dude in charge. So the main dude in charge got to be from the Sadduceean party. And there was a reason for that. It was because of the way way that the Sadducees were sympathetic to Rome. It was because of their, I want you to follow me, their political stance that we see this opposition emerge. Another quote from the same dude. Speaking about the politics of the Sadducees. They were accommodationists with regard to the Roman occupation of Israel. Possessing considerable economic interests, their concern was to make peace with the Romans preserve the status quo, and thus protect their own holdings. In return, the Romans accorded the Sadducees considerable power, invariably appointing the high priest from their ranks, who was the most powerful political figure among the Jews in that day. The prime concern of the Sadducean aristocracy, of whom the high priest was a chief spokesman, was the preservation of order, The avoidance at all costs of any confrontation with the Roman authorities. Here's what I want us to get from this. I want us to begin to see the ruse that's going on here. I want us to begin to see the deception that's at play here with the Sadducees. Now listen. Not that the Sadducees were attempting to deceive but rather that the Sadducees themselves were deceived. There's a ruse happening. There's a false narrative running through this thing. There's deception. Not that the Sadducees were trying to deceive, but that the Sadducees themselves were deceived, victims of the ruse. Because in their minds, what they thought they were doing in opposing Peter and and John and the message in the early church by putting them in prison, what they thought they were doing was securing peace and prosperity for Israel. What they thought they were doing was securing peace and prosperity for their people that what they were doing was good when in fact it was evil evil they had been seduced by the enemy who's the enemy Satan they had been seduced into believing that Jesus was bad for their well-being that's what's going on here they were concerned about their well-being about their peace and their prosperity and that of their people. And they saw Jesus, his work and his message and his person, as a threat to their well-being, their peace and their prosperity. That's why they're opposing the message here. That's why the New Yorker. That's why GQ. GQ. That's why the bill before the government in California. Peter's defense. First of all, Peter just like wanted to clarify what was going on here, right? We saw in verse, uh, which verse is it? Verse eight and nine that Peter says, in essence, okay, guys, when he's brought before the next day after spending the night in jail, when he's brought before this governing party. Says to them in essence, okay guys, I just want to make sure that I'm clear on what's going on here. So you put us in jail and you've got us before the high court now because this dude was made whole. Just want to be sure I, I understand what's going on here. This guy was healed. He'd been lame since birth. He'd always been there. You knew he was lame and he was destitute and he'd always been begging. He's healed and set free and walking and jumping and praising God. And so you put us in jail And now we stand before the Supreme Court and you're calling us to account. I just want to make sure I understand what's going on here. Well, if that's what's going on, if we're busted for this act of kindness and you want to know whose name it was done in, then I just want you and the whole nation to know that this was done in the name of Jesus. Peter's response is ironic because in calling Peter and John to account, They were seeking to, the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees and those they represent, secure their own peace and prosperity. And Peter tells them that Jesus is the only one who brings peace and true prosperity. For it's only in Jesus the man was made whole. Where is your peace and prosperity, Sadducees? Because under your watch, the man was destitute every day at the gate beautiful. but in the name of Jesus he has been made whole. So that which you think brings peace and prosperity is that is not that which brings peace and prosperity. The real rub then comes in what the apostles believed expressly and explicitly about Jesus. And they believe this about Jesus because this is what Jesus said about himself. And this is what the church should always, forever, at all times, tenaciously believe and guard and hold to. It's what Jesus said in John 14:6. Jesus said, "I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one is coming to the Father except through me." Jesus there claims something absurd absolute exclusivity to eternal life. That's what he's saying there. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. There is no eternal life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus claimed absolute exclusivity. When he said, I am the way, he was saying there is no other way. When he said, I am the truth, he was saying there is no other truth. And when he said, I am the life, he was saying there is no life apart from him. And then Peter just reverberates or echoes what Jesus taught them there. In verse 12, when he says in response to them, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now that is the real rub. Because Peter is saying to them explicitly, you will never find what you are looking for apart from Jesus. You see Jesus as being a threat to your well-being. He is the only hope for well-being. He's a way of the truth and life. There's not salvation, there is salvation in no one else except for Jesus. Now that is absurdly offensive to the whole world. How do you offend the whole world at one time? Say that. (laughs) First of all, it tells the whole world that they need a savior. That in and of itself is offensive. And then it claims absolute exclusivity, that every other thing that they thought would bring them ultimate peace, ultimate well-being was not. Now, how did... Peter framed this whole thing. This whole thing is framed in the resurrection of Jesus. Peter has been talking in the last two chapters about the resurrection of Jesus. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no this. Because what Jesus said in John 14, 6 wouldn't have meant a hill of beans in John 20 if Jesus wasn't risen from the dead. The fact that Jesus said this and then rose from the dead gives his words validity beyond anyone else in history. No one else has ever done that. No one else has ever given themselves for the sins of the world, predicted and pulled off their own resurrection from the dead, but Jesus. Therefore, his words have authority beyond anyone else. That is why when Peter preached this, in the very vicinity where Jesus was resurrected from the dead, 5,000 people believe the message, repent of their sins and are baptized and come into being Jesus followers. Because they knew what we know. Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. But there was also the opposite response. Some realize that through Jesus we discover peace with God and ultimate peace and true prosperity, abundant life, and eternal life. But others saw, as I've been saying, Jesus as a threat to their peace and prosperity. And those opposite responses, right? Right? 5,000 saved, and then these people that throw Peter and John in prison. Those opposite responses tell us something that we cannot miss. That is that we, as the followers of Jesus, as Christians, live in a constant state of war. We cannot miss that. We can't miss that for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's right here in the text. There's a war unfolding opposing responses to Jesus. And we can't miss that because what is at stake is too high. You know what's at stake? The souls of men, women, and children. That's what this battle is about. The souls of men, women, and children. This is, I want to say, I just want to frame it like this. What we are engaged in, spiritual warfare, is the battle of our lifetime. The battle of our lifetime. Like in other words, the biggest thing we could possibly live for. The greatest thing that we could give ourselves for. The most profound thing that we could invest in. No cost too great. No reach too long. For this is what Christ has done in the response to it in the world. An immense battle. And people's souls are at stake. That was true then in this text, and that's true now. And it might be, again, as I said, couched in different things, you know, like freedom from moral constraint, political correctness, greed. But the truest, deepest reason that sits behind all of this opposition is the fact that Jesus is the true king of the universe. And to that truth, to that message, there is from the enemy real and great opposition that manifests itself in this world around us and in our lives. Jesus said in John 15 to his disciples that this would be about him, but they could expect to experience it, right? He says in John 15, if the world hates you, just remember it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it but you're no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Pause right there for a moment. That's radical. Jesus is saying, if you were to just go along with the world and the way the world is going, the world wouldn't have any problem with you. But I've called you to be different from the world. I've called you out of the world as my followers. And as long as you do that, you will stand in contrast to the way and the flow and the zeitgeist of this world and you will be unpopular. And so a large scheme of the enemy against you, Christian, is to lull you into complacency to pacify you and so keep you from seeing the way that this world is counter Christ, his person and his message so that you just go along with it. How many of you have ever read The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis? Some of you? The rest of you, homework this week. Read it. You will not be disappointed. Why do you laugh when I say homework? I ain't kidding. Read it this week. I'm just kidding. Who knows? Uh, Screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis there portrays a dialogue between two demons. And in the screw tape letters, demons are assigned people to mess with, to pull them away from vibrant Christianity. And I was driving up to, uh, my son and I were driving up to Lemoore, California on Friday to go surfing. Figure it out. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Some of you know what I'm talking about. And it's a long drive. It's three and a half hours. Boring drive. Nothing to see. And so we're listening to the screw Tape Letters on, uh, what's it called? Audiobook. Audiobook. I read it years ago. I reread it years ago again. I'm old enough to have read it a couple times with decades apart. Hadn't heard it in a long time. and When my son and I were listening to it, I was dumbfounded. I was dumbfounded. At the way C.S. Lewis portrays there the subtle, insidious, sneaky, almost imperceivable ways that the enemy lulls us and pacifies us into not seeing the way the world is opposed to the person and work of Christ and to just go along with it. I was rattled. Do that. I was rattled. I was rattled by the way that was expressed there. The point of that is we have an enemy who is real. He is radically opposed to Jesus. And to the degree that we endeavor to follow Jesus, we are caught up in a battle that is real. And the less you go along with the world, the more you're going to experience it. Because, like the Sadducees, many believe that peace and prosperity is not found in Jesus. He's opposed to their well-being. But we're learning something better. So Jesus continues. I, that was a long digression, but a good one. Jesus continues in verse 20 and says, Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than his master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. If they had listened to me, they'd listen to you. They do all of this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. Jesus tells us, he's telling Peter and John, this is real, this battle is real. You're going to experience it. You're going to experience opposition and persecution. But it's not about you. It's about me. But it's also not about the author at the New Yorker. It's not about the author of the bill before the California Legislation, legislation body it's not about the dork at GQ that wrote that <laughs> quote me on that send it to him <laughs> it's about spiritual realities behind these things right? Paul reminds us in Ephesians when he says now I feel guilty for calling him a dork uh, a final word Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you may be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So Jesus says there's a real battle going on in the world. It's because of me and who I am, they hate me, Jesus says. But because you're mine, they're also going to hate you. But it's not about them. It's about these spiritual forces of wickedness at work behind them. And here's what their goal is, Jesus says. Look in John chapter something. Jesus says, yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pastures. But the thief's purpose, who's the thief he's referring to? The thief's purpose is to steal kill and destroy. Pause right there. Man, he unmasks the enemy here because what the enemy is, is deceptive and seductive. Deceptive and seductive. He's never going to enter into the life of a Christian and say, listen, here's my deal. I want to steal from you. I want to kill you and I want to destroy your life. I want to destroy your marriage and your children. I want to destroy generations of your family. He's never going to say that. He's going to say, what I want to bring to you is the peace and the prosperity that you are longing. And Jesus himself stands in the way of that. And so he makes sin incredibly attractive. That's why we do it. He makes things of the world seem ultimate. That's why we pursue it. But Jesus here in his love for us unmasks the enemy and tells us, listen, he always only ever comes to steal from you, to kill you and destroy you. And then he says, but my purpose is to give them or you a rich and satisfying life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. Jesus came to give us a rich and satisfying life, abundant life, as it says in other translations. Just what the Sadducees were in all truth seeking, but were deceived as to the truth of how to find it. Jesus says, I am the only one who can give you a rich and satisfying existence. He's for us, the enemy is against us. Now, greater is Jesus than the enemy. And I've read the end of the book, I've read the end of the book, Jesus wins. Man, if things are getting hairy, for yeah, praise God for that. Sometimes you just got to like skip to the end, you know what I mean? Like, okay, let's just cut to the chase here. What's going on? Jesus wins in the end. But until Christ returns, there is this battle. Satan is a defeated foe, to be sure. He was defeated through the cross of Christ and his resurrection. But until his final vanquishing that we see in the book of Revelation, there is this battle and it's real and there is so much that is at stake. And I love then the example of Peter and how he responds. You know what Peter could have done? First of all, Peter, who preaches Jesus, people get saved, and then gets thrown in jail, could have gotten mad at God. Anybody ever done that? Like, really, God? I'm doing all the right things, and all the bad things are happening to me? Anybody ever feel that way? Peter could have gotten mad at God. Peter could have just screamed about the injustice of it all. Peter was, after all, now the de facto leader of several thousand people in a small community. And he could have rallied the troops to come down to the jail with free Pete signs. And to go to the Sanhedrin and form a picket line there. Picket and protest the Sanhedrin for this great injustice. Could have felt really sorry for himself and just moaned and groaned and cried about it. Woe is me. All very human responses. But I want you to see what it says in verse 8. And we'll put it on the screen. And then Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, How did Peter respond to spiritual battle? Manifesting self in the physical realm? He responded with spiritual means. Peter was full of the Holy Ghost. Someone say Holy Ghost. Peter was full of the Holy Spirit. Now Peter had already been filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. This is what we call theologically a subsequent filling. He was filled and now he needed to be filled again because the needs were great. Great opposition, great need, Lack of resource, what do we do as God's people? God, fill me with your spirit. Yeah, come on, that's right. Peter was full of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter responds in the spirit, as opposed to the flesh. You know, what we do so many times in life, we respond in the flesh, right? And if Peter responded in the flesh, he probably would have gotten mad at God. He probably would have griped about his situation, bemoaned the injustice of it all, and just gone on, spinning his little wheels. But Peter is now filled with the Holy Spirit, again, a fresh filling. And so what Peter does next is he sticks with the Bible. He was speaking to the religious scholars of the day, the religious authorities of the day, the experts in the Bible. Peter was not intimidated by their PhDs, or their professor title, or their books that they wrote, or anything else. Peter, an untrained, uneducated man, will learn next week, just quotes to them the Bible, and then puts them smack in the middle of it. Verse 11, he says to them, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, quoting Psalm 118, which has become the chief cornerstone. The very thing that you guys rejected, Peter said to them, is the very thing that you should be building your existence on. Cornerstone, that which you build on, that which you base everything else on, that which determines what is plumb and square and right. Jesus. Peter sticks with the Bible, man, because he's full of the Holy Spirit. And then I love what he does next. He keeps the main thing the main thing. He makes it about Jesus. He doesn't make it about the injustice of his suffering. He doesn't make it about his plight. Doesn't make it this big picketing political thing. He just keeps the main thing, the main thing. And so he says in verse 12, look, salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. He brings it right back to Jesus and his unique identity. Peter keeps the main thing, the main thing. He doesn't get sidetracked into all of these other things. Now, there is a place for picketing. There is a place for politicking. There is a place for legislation. There is a debate that should happen in the public realm, but it should not happen from us without being full of the Holy Spirit, sticking with the Bible, and making Jesus the main thing. That's the way that's supposed to go down full of the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit, please God help us, sticking with the Bible because it is a true, full, final revelation of God. And making Jesus the main point because the whole thing is about him. Every man, woman, and child will stand or fall on their view of Jesus. There's no other name given. To humanity by which people can get saved other than the name of Jesus. So when opposition comes, when it manifests itself through all these means and ways and through all this influence and this political power and how many subscribers and readers and how big the platform, we as the people of Jesus got to keep taking it back to Jesus. And then finally, Peter calls for a prayer meeting. That's in next week's text, but he gets out of jail. He gets out of this drama, and he goes to the church, and the church has a prayer meeting. Bro, that's what the church does. The church prays, because that's what Jesus did. Jesus had such a robust prayer life that the disciples said to Jesus, Jesus, teach us how to pray. They never said, teach us how to walk on water. They never said, teach us how to heal people. They never said, teach us how to do any of that other awesome stuff. They just said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Now here's the deal with walking in the spirit, sticking with the Bible, making it about Jesus and praying. It is powerful to change the reality of this world. Right? What did Paul write in 2 Corinthians chapter something? He wrote, we are human but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons. Not worldly weapons. To knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture the rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. God's mighty weapons. Walking in the power of the Spirit. God's holy word. Jesus as The main point of all things in prayer. God's mighty weapons. To come against these false claims about truth and Jesus. This lie that somehow Jesus stands between us and peace and prosperity and well-being. Notice, we don't hate the people. We love the people. For God so loved sinners that He gave His only begotten Son. We love every person represented by this opposition and embroiled in it but we hate the lies that are propagated from the enemy and we are not ignorant to his schemes and we see that there is real deception in working in our world and it's time to wake up. The battle is real. We're in it, whether we recognize it or not. So with all the resources that God gives you and because Jesus wins, fight the battle, man. Walk in the Spirit. Let your prayer every single day be, God, fill me with your Spirit. Stick with the Bible. I'm telling you, dude. I'm telling you. I know there's a lot of other voices in your ears telling you otherwise, but you are not gonna stand before Jesus and regret having believed his word. I'll see you there that day. You mark my word. You're not gonna regret that. There will be no shame for standing before Jesus saying, I believed every word. There'll be no shame on that day. Stick with the Bible. Don't get caught up in all the noise. It's about Jesus. From beginning to end, it's about Jesus. He's the only way that men and women can be saved. And my goodness, Lord, teach us how to pray. Because this battle isn't some far off land. This battle is for your children. How are you fighting the battle? What's going on with your kids? This battle is about your children. This battle is about your marriage. This battle is about your sexuality. And the consequences and results of these things will reach generations. So don't be lulled into complacency. Be alive in Christ who is in us and victorious. See the battle. Fight it with the power of the Holy Spirit, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, Christ our victor himself, and on your knees in prayer. Jesus wins, and so do we. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for your great love for us and your victory on our behalf on and through the cross. And today we ask now, as we seek you, you teach us to walk in that victory. Holy Spirit, please open our eyes where we have been complacent, where we've been lulled into the way of the world, Please save us from being conformed to the image of the world and transform us by the renewing of our minds. Please show us the areas of compromise in our lives. And please help us from a place of victory for Jesus you win. Please help us to battle faithfully. Please, God, for our kids, for our marriages, for our families, for our community, please, God, teach us to stand firm and resist the enemy. Make us fearless in the face of opposition. Governing authorities, big magazines, all the other voices. Make us bold, fearless, compassionate, and faithful in the face of opposition. And please, God, manifest more of your victory in our lives right now God please God more of your victory more victory over sin more freedom from unforgiveness more faithfulness in our parenting our marriages and our sexuality and our finances please God more of your victory in our lives for we are yours and you are king greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Christ, and you are coming again to set right all that has gone wrong. May we be faithful now until the end, Lord.